And I, uh, Croissant. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. This week, in a slightly changed edition, uh, we are meeting for the second time a thrice-recognised community cricket coach, Rick Walton. Alongside his cricket coaching, Rick has also found, in the last 18 months, time to write and publish a book. Entitled The Dots Will Not Be Joined, the book was a chance to reflect on his experiences as a community cricket coach in Pembrokeshire and to sketch out, for want of a better word, his philosophy on sport as part of life. We caught up with Rick this week after he'd been awarded a Community Cricket Award by Chance to Shine, the national charity that aims to give all children the opportunity to play, learn and develop through cricket. You're going to hear first a brief telephone chat with Rick congratulating him on his award. And then secondly, a mixture of uh, interview and excerpts from the launch event for his book, The Dots Will Not Be Joined, which took place two or three weeks ago. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here we go. OK, well, Rick, you've won an award. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about it, uh, who it's from and what it was for? I will. Um, I understand it. Um, I, I was obviously nominated uh, for work um, in mainly in schools, but actually maybe wider than that in a, in a sense. I've done quite a bit of um, coaching in clubs, particularly to support all-stars and dynamos cricket, so youngish boys and girls. Um, frankly, I really don't quite know who nominated me. It may have been my fabulous partner in crime, Martin Jones, from Cricket Wales, but I'm not sure, uh, or if it was somebody within a primary school or within the, the clubs. Um, so, yeah, it was a kind of recognition, I suppose, for hopefully being a decent bloke and trying to um, support kids into cricket. And the organisation uh, that's given you the award, Chance to Shine, they've been around a little while. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them and your involvement with them? Yeah, we'll happily we'll do. Chance to Shine are, and I'm biased, but they are a mag- rather magnificent charity, cricket-specific, um, funded by good folks around the universe, um, and by uh, you know, they, they must get some money from the likes of Sport Wales or Sport England or similar. Um, but I'd say they are a charity... And their brief, really, or their ethos is very much this lovely thing about, tell you what, let's get boys and girls of all abilities and races, etc., etc., um, in all uh, situations, if possible. And I'm, I'm saying that because I'm, I'm very conscious that they, um, for example, do what they call street cricket stuff, which tends to be in urban centres, places where there are no green spaces. Um, and they do that brilliantly via coaches like myself, um, as well as, you know, lucky people like me who are doing it in the, the fabulous green valleys of Wales. Um, so they are, yeah, they are part, but they part fund Cricket Wales um, alongside other people. Um, so effectively, I've been kind of working for Chance to Shine via Cricket Wales for 10, 11 years, maybe, something of that sort. Okay, and um, a lot of love for you on uh, social media uh, last night and this morning. Yeah, that I mean, kind of gratifying. We've had these conversations before, Stephen, haven't we? And genuinely, in some ways, I'm a bit embarrassed about it all, and I am really conscious, and I want to say this, that look, it could have been, and you know, there are plenty of other guys and gals in cricket Wales um, who could have been up there instead of me. So I really do feel like it's a recognition of a sort of a brilliant team, you know, the cricket Wales community coaching team is outstanding. There are some great people in it. 
uh, and I'm proud of them. And, you know, if it happened to be me up there, I did feel like I was kind of rep- representing them. And that, that's, you know, that's, yeah, really kind of quite deeply gratifying to, to this effect. There was a lot of love around that room last night and a lot of kind of genuine commitment to that whole kind of wonderful, diverse approach for diverse people in, in diverse situations, you know, really getting that cricket. Cricket, as with other sports, really can transform. Um, so it's really critical to get those opportunities there, uh, wherever we can get, wherever we can do it, however we can do it. So, you know, that was the general, that's what really struck me, actually, and, and was, um, yeah, kind of deeply kind of pleasurable, I, I hope, for all, or everybody in the room. I think probably that would be the case. Uh, well, just for me then, I guess, to add our uh, warmest congratulations from everyone at the Museum of Welsh Cricket. Uh, it's been lovely Thank getting you. to know about you, but perhaps more importantly, the work that you do. And, um, well, long may it continue by uh, uh, with all the different sort of coaches uh, up and down through through Wales that are doing a fantastic job. So, well done. Thank you, mate. And, yeah, hallelujah to that. Yeah, there really are, you know, many, many people who as yet unrecognised, but, you know, I salute them. Rick is a very understated gentleman, so um, he didn't want too much fuss. Uh, <laughs> I really don't know where this has come from. This isn't part of the plan, but uh, I'm assuming at some point, maybe with dry ice, maybe with kind of a lowering the lights, maybe with you all getting your phones out and putting your mobile phones on like that. So, Rick Walton, welcome again to the uh, Museum of Welsh Cricket podcast. Nice to be back, thank you. And uh, this time, you've come armed with a book. Um, why a book? Really good question, not an easy one to answer, to be honest. I'll tell you what, in the short term, lockdown. I think I've always had at least one book in me, you know, meaning that I'm probably threatening the universe with more. I think I probably am, actually. But I know some people will still feel it's a collection of blogs. I politely dispute that. But in, the, in the introduction, or very near the beginning of the book, you talk about it being a compendium of ideas. So there are lots of different things in the book, but would you agree it's has through through its centre and at its heart uh, cricket and the game of cricket? Yeah, definitely. Cricket and football, I would have to put that in there because both play, have played a massive part in my life. Some of your listeners will know that I've, I've been very proud to work for Cricket Wales for 10, 11 years and actually did lots of cricket stuff before that. Is The sound bite, if you want one, is, is something like it's a love song to sport and I really mean that. It really is. It's about celebrating this idea that sport, in many forms, can genuinely be truly, profoundly good. I've been privileged to offer some opportunities, maybe particularly to junior cricket players, maybe, that nudge them towards discovering something really wonderful and, again, genuinely deep about life, sport, comradeship, many, many things. The Dots Will Not Be Joined is the book's title. Can you explain a little bit about why you came to have that as the title of the book? Big, big picture. 
don't come to this book or anywhere else, I think I'm suggesting looking for all the answers. I think there really are more questions and answers. Fundamentally, it does feel to me this book like a very honest so social document, if you like, admittedly of my own experiences. It's, it's, a, it's mainly a memoir, but I think it's true in that way. Um, and I think to write it in another way, it would have been less true. Having said all of that, the, the bulk of your experience, certainly in the last 10, 15 years, has been around coaching yeah. uh, in, in, in one shape or form, in one place or another. Have you developed a philosophy around your coaching of, of sport? There are situations where it's very tempting to pontificate, um, but still I think the job of the coach or teacher maybe is to try and get in amongst those children and kind of feed off their energy and understand what is appropriate for them and what therefore um, is appropriate to you know, coach at what level, how much instruction there is, how much technical information. It may be none, it really may not be appropriate, it really may be. You just need to kind of metaphorically put your arm around this individual to make them feel better about stuff. And uh, there are many other things, of course. There are many, and many of them are technical um, skills, skill development, of course. But fundamentally, I'm, I'm happy to put, you know, raise my flag around that one, just this idea. You've got to kind of got to care and be really interested in those individuals. Your own talent is not the centre of this, you know. It's essential to the coaching process, but it's not the centre of this. They are the centre of it. As, as children grow into an enjoyment of the sport, and I'm thinking particularly cricket because that's where, yeah, what sure. we yeah. share, there is something in the book about the different disciplines, batting, bowling and fielding. Yeah. Um, you very much emphasise the need for everyone to enjoy all of those aspects of the game. Do you want to say a little bit about... Yeah, about I do. That? And again, this might sound old school or something or whatever. Um, honestly, I think it's as simple as this. I don't really understand how you can love cricket and want to spend a lifetime in cricket, recreational or, or elsewhere. And I'm thinking it recreational, I think, and with kids. You know, um, if you don't, get into fielding, actually. You know, a third of the game, basically... It's the right thing to do to back up your mates and work hard in the field. But maybe more importantly, it's the right thing to, to do for, for you to enjoy this game. You know, lift your energy, be part of this thing that's going on around you. We all know it's very tempting. You see top-level players doing this, standing on the boundary, looking like they're not remotely involved in the activity that's going on around them. I kind of, you know, that, that winds me up a bit. Uh, as much as I think, I think it's a real missed opportunity. Fielding is great. Diving around, trying to catch, chasing the ball, backing up your mate. Um, why wouldn't you want to feel involved and, and, as I say, make some kind of contribution? That's, that's central for me. This is from Chapter 11, Bad Stuff in the Games. Mourinho, the guy's poisonous. That bleak, Trumpian narcissism. Those endless mind games. God, what a bore he is. What a dead soul. Experienced enough to hold the top club in contention, but so deeply miserable a spirit that you just know his darkness will drive his players from him soon enough. The fact that he got the Spurs job after his relatively mediocre and often unsavoury work over the last few years speaks volumes about the state of the football universe. It's crass. It's delusional. 
it lacks values as well as value. More than that, it lacks judgment in nearly every sense. Mourinho has for two or three years been widely viewed as a spent or deteriorating force. Players are at least as likely to hate his vanity and his late stage bus parking as they were once queuing to sign for him. But he gets big projects because the whole of creation, well, impressionable chairman, gets sucked in. We, they, are attracted, apparently, by the noise, the fuss, the column inches, and all the notion that he's a winner. Because he was. We've been algorithmed again. I'm going to go on, if that's okay. Spurs were top, November 2020. I wish Tony Bohanna was here. Um, he's not. But it didn't and couldn't last. What will last, what will last, is the sense that despite having outstanding attacking players, Son, Kane, Bale, Maurer, they opted for a deeply negative mindset whenever the bigger games came around. Well, let's be plain. Mourinho dictated so. He may not be alone in this, but no wonder he failed so utterly to galvanise the enigmatic but ravishingly gifted Bale. Those of us who picture Tottenham as a home for cosmopolitan flash and dash and skill think on the football contributions of Venables, Hoddle, Redknapp, Villa, Ardiles, Gascoigne, Sheringham, Ericsson, for example, have been swiftish perhaps, but unapologetic in shunting spurs towards the team we all love to hate column. And that's been Mourinho. He breeds vituperation and discontent. Imagine being a fabulous talent now and hearing that Jose wanted you. Imagine how quickly you'd be shrieking at your agent to phone Klopp or Pep. For his relentless suffocation of, his jo- of joy, his insulting and criminally miserable press conferences, and maybe particularly his blame the player shtick, Mourinho is top of my bad stuff in the games pile. As someone who clearly thinks a lot about what they do and what they're doing, um, you take little pieces from, from other people. And, and there are several individuals that you mention in the book who uh, you grab onto something very important that they've said. Um, the name I've got here, the two names that, that ring a bell with me, were uh, Rich Hudson yeah. and Peter Brett. Could okay. you say a little bit about Rich and Peter and what you got from them that's ended up in the book? Yeah, okay, yeah. No, interesting because they massive, there's a universe between those two guys in terms of what they do and, and contribute. Rich Hudson, who I've never met, but he's, a, he's another Twitter, well not Twitter mate, forgive me Rich if you're listening, somebody I've come across on Twitter who is, a, he, I think he is a level four cricket coach, but specifically his expertise is in psychology, sports psychology, supporting people's mental health and or temperament and or readiness to play the game. I'm always using the word profound, but that really does make a profound contribution to understanding sport because of his skill, intelligence around uh, the mechanics of thought, awareness, uh, mental health, etc, etc. So really fascinating. The other fella, Peter Brett, and he, I don't think he will mind me saying that contro- controversy has followed Peter a little. He's a tough guy. He mentored me as a coach at one stage because he's a brilliant coach, very uh, technically aware, strong kind of fella, but also very much to his credit. Peter said something to the effect that, look, isn't it just really good practice if you imagine you're in a class or in a group of players, whatever they may, at whatever level, 
just to get in amongst them, literally get in their faces in a very supportive, enthusiastic way that does say this magical thing. I see what you're doing there, pal. It's great. It is an incumbent, an incumbent, if I can say it even, upon us as good coaches, hopefully, to get in and support and recognise and actually try and get round everybody in your session, if you can, to say, what a catch, Sarah. What a shot, Joe. You do actually change the universe just a little bit, just a little bit for the better, if you can get in and say, I saw that, mate. It was great. You know? Um, absolutely believe that, however corny it may sound. One of the things we probably all remember growing up is our enjoyment of sport went hand in hand with our uh, idolisation of the people that played the sport we were playing, so footballers or rugby players or yeah. cricketers. I notice you use examples from some of the top cricketers of today uh, to try and make points that are maybe relevant to everybody playing the game. Okay. Do you want to say a little bit about perhaps the, the stuff you wrote about Joss Butler? Go, go to the book and find out what, he's, what he wrote on the top of his bat handle, friends, if you don't already know, because I thought that that was really quite a striking little metaphor, actually, for everything being in proportion and confidence being massive and finding, finding a way to be comfortable and free. And when Butler does that, it's probably one of the great sights in sport. End of. Boomer's action is pleasingly unpleasing. It's relatively idiosyncratic and therefore distinctive in a world where it feels like bowlers may be being overcoached and roboticised. It's possibly easier to describe what it's not than what it is. It is not classical, not even fluent particularly. It's not Anderson, Ishant, Cummins or anybody else. The run-up is short and features something of a leftward-leaning phase, an odd cradling of the arms and a relative absence of threat or dynamism until the last possible moment. Then at least one spare arm appears to fling high hands wantonly high before that final spearing discombobulating wheel delivery is utterly legal but almost offensive in aesthetic terms except that because it's so patently patently his own we love it we love him boomra is dismissing the received wisdoms of the universe and flicking those bees alongside butler he's doing those things for us the book it says a lot or talks about a lot more different things than just cricket. Yeah. I don't know now if you want to maybe uh, talk a little bit about one or two of those things that you mention that are important to you and perhaps how they relate to the joy and the release that we get from watching or participating in, in sport. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. I think it's yeah, perfectly legit to, to talk about art and music, which have been massive parts of my life, as though they are part of some bigger picture, because they are, and that picture does include this kind of, yeah, the kind of liberation, maybe, that, um, and the wonder of sport. Some of the people that perhaps have, have been missing from the world of sporting excellence are women, yeah. women sports people. You do a lot in the book about talking about your female heroines, your female sports heroes. That's an important journey that you've been on, discovering uh, women's cricket, talking about and writing about women's cricket and seeing 
the transformation of, of women's cricket in the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's magic. I do think it's magic. And again, this does bring us back to this idea maybe of, of, um, of our own baggage. You know, I am a middle-aged white geezer. I was brought up in a probably pretty macho family. I've got four brothers. We all played football, cricket. St- we were sporty guys, etc., etc. The era has changed. We are all more aware, quite rightly, of issues around sexism. I have learned very much, been inspired very much from local women cricketers, very much in Pembrokeshire, at, at the outset probably, as well as in having a daughter who was sporty, etc. And that, as well as being in schools where plainly I, sh- I absolutely should be encouraging girls, and absolutely do, to play cricket. I kind of fell into going to watch Eng- England women. I got, I, I, as you know, I got accreditation, ECB accreditation, and really liked it, really enjoyed it. Uh, some of the, the kind of vibe uh, and the positivity around women's cricket just drew me in, as did the entertaining cricket that was being played. Really did. Uh, re- really did love watching Amir Shropsal, I write about in the book, in Cardiff was a bit of a revelation, and probably stupidly, I should have known that Anya Shrutal was that good, and she swung the ball further than the blokes. You know, I know it's unwise maybe to make the comparison, but I'm just saying that this was a kind of moment of revelation for me. And so from then forward, I thought, I really enjoyed and relished, yeah, the opportunity to watch in front of me the, the quality of the game improve, the level of support around it is still, you know, it's not where it should be, frankly, it really isn't. It's on a, on a really exciting upward tra- trajectory, and I think that's right. And I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to have been able to cover that, literally kind of cover it, for whatever that period is, five, six, seven years. One of the things you're very honest uh, and upfront about is not wanting to be seen as an expert, not wanting to be too preachy and say that your truth is the truth for everybody. Yeah. But at the end of the book, you do say that it's important to be open constantly as, as we grow older, to be open to new ideas and to be able to respond to new things that happen, whether that's in sporting life or in artistic life uh, or in society generally. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that how you feel? It certainly comes across with everything that you say, that you're incredibly positive, incredibly optimistic, but also incredibly open to to what other people have got to say and to, to learn yourself? I will take that as a compliment. I hope so. Um, I'm trying to remember. There's a sentence in the book, because I, I flicked through it the other night, saying the wisest thing I can say is that I know I'm a fool. All of us need to be thinking this in a sense. We, we, we've got to be generous-spirited enough to accept that, A, we're going to be wrong. I'm, I'm very wrong. I'm often very wrong. There is a fair amount of mischief. It's deliberate, some of it, as a sort of friendly provocation. But the, the assumption is there that I may well be wrong about this and it's fine if my mate who's having a pint with me says, don't be daft, you know, or somebody at a more profound level challenges me about that. That's great. That openness is essential, is it not, to discovery, actually, on on every level, whether that's arty-farty stuff or sport or finding further magic from people who just suddenly have an inspiration that you weren't clever or bright or generous enough to think of them, you know, yourself. I support and I'm drawn to artists, what they do, what they say, because the overwhelming majority are trying to find profound answers to profound questions in a way that probably nobody else is. They ask about the meaning of life because they don't know what else to do, because they feel it's their job or calling, and most just quietly get on with it. 
Easy to be cynical about that stuff, but that level of integrity is precious. You hold up your flag. In this book, leg spin might be carpentry and batting might be business. Coaching might be about reading the human, about as much as it's about structure or instruction. Experience, sights, sounds, everything feeds in to the search for understanding. To almost quote my mate Ted Lasso, that's part of the fun. I can't and I don't want to join all the dots. I think there may be connections between Julian Cope, Joss Butler and Angela Carter, but I could be wrong. Jeanette, Jeanette Winterson may be somewhat disconcerted to find herself on the same metaphorical pitch as Elvis Costello, Maradona and Dylan Thomas. And I'm hoping she's brought a beautiful, cultured left foot. If not, I will substitute her quietly on the hour so as not to undermine her confidence and bring on Kate Bush. Or Elise Perry, or Edvard Munch, or Rachel Thomas, or Nobby Howells, or Simon Williams, or Bill Kahn, or Stephen Sean, or Megan Jenkins, all of whom have made contributions far worthier and richer than my own to sport in West Wales. I do want you to think about your own heroes and heroines and about how you judge things. That can be fun, right? As well as challenging. About how free or otherwise you are, we all are, of baggage or prejudice about how in a nation that feels so polarised we find a way to A, campaign or argue our deeply held beliefs whilst B, accepting to the side, enough. Friends, it might be, it might be ridiculous to write something that is part coaching manual, part Desert Island Discs and part anarchist manifesto. I do understand that. It has, strangely, crossed my mind that grown-up writers are not supposed to do this. Friends, the dots will not be joined. It's sold to you as a love song to sport and a compendium of ideas. There are laughs, I promise, stories, mischief, coaching in primary schools and additional learning needs units and on the Cricket Wales pathway. We're playing football in Solver and the Grimsby Sunday Football League and watching at Wembley, Anfield, Main Road, Blundell Park. Plus, there is white, middle-aged, existential angst by the lorry load. It's sports writing of a different kind. I like it. Thank you. Rick will tell you that one of the people he really admires in sports writing is a chap called Barney Roney, who writes regularly for The Guardian. He's their chief sports writer. And um, he's been the winner of the journalist's Sports Writer of the Year on a couple of occasions, I think. Uh, and I guess, for all of us, quite an important kind of person. And, and many of us may have come across his articles on, on, on various kind of bits of sport, particularly football. I know you've had a bit of a link with him through Twitter and, uh, and kind of got, got to know him a little bit and he knows you a little bit. Um, and he was going to write the forward for the book and that didn't happen for, for, for whatever reason. No. But he has sent you a message which we're going to play now, hopefully. So. I'm incredibly impressed by anyone who can get to this stage. Um, so but congratulations on getting this far. Um, it's a great book. As you know, I think it's, it's, I've really enjoyed reading it and I've left it around for my kids to pick up and I hope something will rub off on them. And um, I've really enjoyed following your writing career 
and it's been inspirational in a way. It's always nice to read people who have that kind of passion for it and, and who rub off on you. So all the best, good luck, and uh, keep on keeping on. by your book, Rick, that we haven't read it yet, but what you're talking about in terms of how sport can help people, and the psychology, and how it can lift you out of certain situations and create positivity. Yeah. As you know, I'm not a sports person, and I don't have the slightest inkling or interest in football. My sport is Kung Fu, and as a child, I was always very active into gymnastics, climbing trees, falling into rivers, very active. Um, first person to walk on the hands in school. And, and it wasn't until I was 44 I started taking up Kung Fu. And it was like I just landed in this world of something that I thought, I can do this. And I really felt at home. And uh, I ended up going, training three nights a week, sometimes four nights a week travelling away at weekends, and I thought I could have just spent my whole life doing nothing else but Kung Fu, for which when our son was growing up, I missed quite a bit because I was always out Kung fu It changed my attitude to how I lived, how I dealt with people, my opinion of myself and what I could do, and when things were difficult, you don't give up because there's always something in reserve. Loads of anecdotes yeah, like that that sure. I still feed from and work with. Okay. Um, have a massive impression on me. Um, I don't still go to classes, but I'm teaching Tai Chi and Qigong, and it's still a real part of my existence. Uh, love it to bits. And for me, you know, that is the importance of sports. Okay. I say, when I started, I was the only female. That yeah. Blow my trumpet. Yeah, the no. only female in the classes. And I brought up with people thinking that I was a really feeble, delicate person. And um, I was determined to be the first female to get black sash in Pembrokeshire, and I got there. Now. Awesome. I'll just say something. Please, yeah, please do, please do. Only because we we rocked up here tonight. Um, I don't know if you met on. It's really nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> And I've got three boys, and their grandfather, who died six years ago, you know, my dad today, in fact, he influenced them to love sport. And um, um, I was the oldest, sadly, and, and then my sister, but then my brother came along with hooray, there was a boy for him to you know, and, and then he had two boys. And I have three, and they've all been to the cop, and they, you know, it's been about sport for them. And um, I didn't really pick it up, but you know, my three boys love watching Liverpool. They're doing really well, and I know how important sport is, and I can see it from what you've done here. And uh, and to and to sport bring it family, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to bring it on with children, and to you know, to, yeah. to and I see that picture of you working with the kids, and it's really lovely. Final kind of two little questions, really. Yeah. What do you hope people will get if they buy the book? 
And then practically, how can they get hold of it? Uh, thank you for the second one. Uh, first one, I hope, I hope they'll laugh because I think it's kind of quite funny actually, some of it. Um, I hope they'll like the, the fact that it's mischievous and crazy ambitious. Um, I accept that as a positive and a negative. Uh, I'm reasonably confident that quite a lot of people will find something in there that makes them think, yeah, do you know what? I felt like that in, in that dressing room in Bridge End or, or whatever. So, so shared experience of that wonderful sporting magic and beyond and beyond, actually, uh, in terms of how people get hold of it. Bless you. We are sitting in the Druidston Hotel in Pembrokeshire. It's available here. Uh, there are local bookshops to me in Pembrokeshire. Sadly, only a, cu- only a couple at the moment that have it. Seaways Bookshop in Fishguard and Victoria Bookshop in Hubbard West. And I will try and keep them stocked. I would rather sell it through independent bookshops. But the nature of the universe, which conspires against us somewhat, us people who aren't big names, uh, means that I am flogging it through Amazon, as you do, or on the online, the online retailers. Um, if you go and look for Rick Walton, the dots will not be joined, you will find it. There is actually also a, a, an earlier book called Unweighted, which is a book of blogs, but it's out there. You can find it. Please do. Okay. Another question has very quickly occurred to me. The book is self-published. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that process. Would you recommend it to, to others who've maybe got things to say and, and, and uh, feel daunted about the prospect of trying to get them published? In a word, yes, very much so, very much so. I think this will increase, actually, because, again, I've got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about the publishing industry, as you might imagine. Do it. It will probably, friends, cost you about £1,000 to get a book ready and out there. That's a paperback and an e-book in my case. That's what it's cost me. I'm quite open about that. Um, don't expect to get all that back, but let's see. Uh, but the process is pretty simple. There are plenty of people who are providing it. I've gone through a, a company called Grosvenor House Publishing. My experience has been brilliant in every way. It really has. I take some thought, but it's, it's, it, I, I foresee, and I, I welcome the idea actually, because I think a lot of people I, I probably wouldn't get a publishing contract, frankly. I'm a nobody. Nobody knows who I am, really. And I write in a kind of quirky kind of way that maybe most publishers or agents aren't necessarily going to buy into. So, yeah, it was, it was my way in. I recommend it as a way in for other people, absolutely. Um, and for those people that maybe want to read a little bit of your back catalogue, as it may be, um, how can people get hold of that stuff? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I'm a... Uh, self-determined bloggist. I quite like the name bloggist because it sounds a bit left-fieldy or whatever. And I, and I don't like the word blog much, frankly. But I've been writing two blogs for some years. Bowlingatvincent.com was a sort of alternating sports arts thing that started, I think, in 2011 or something like that. So it's been going for some years. Then when I got really got going into the cricket man thing, you know, i.e. working for Cricket Wales, I set up cricketmanwales.com there are hundreds, actually, of posts over the, over the period of 10, 11, 12 years. Thanks very much for joining us today, Rick, and uh, all the best with the book. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Rick for giving up his time and for all the work that he's done in the last 10 years in Pembrokeshire schools and cricket clubs. Next time we will have an interview with Fred Raffle, Glamorgan supporter and regular tourist abroad following English cricket, which all sounds 
particularly unspectacular until you're told that Fred was practically blind at birth and has lived his life as a blind person. So join us next time for an interview with Fred when we'll have some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Hoilvaur, bye for now. story you have any good any macrosic gisselty a boss your mwc pod 1921 at gmail.com nate elkin facebook museum of welsh cricket podcast nate into dalen twitter at welsh cricket pod do you have a story you'd like to share with us if so please contact email mwc pod 1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.